0: Uh, folks, keep that passage open before you. We're actually going to try and deal with uh, most of the material in in a couple of uh, passages, so the one that Sam's just read, but also the one before it that makes up the first half of chapter 30, so uh, quite a lot of ground to cover here today. Before I begin to come to these verses, I want to introduce you to an idea that's grown in my mind um, as I've transitioned through some uh, of life's changes myself and as I've also tried to pastor uh, some of you uh, through those transitions too. So I'll ask, um, I'll ask Paul to pop up the, the little graph that I uh, gave him for the PowerPoint. I'm calling this the life with God curve and it's um, my sense of how we many of us experience God's presence and work in our lives over time. Now before I go any further, I want to say that this is based on a huge generalization. Some people don't like generalizations, they make them cross. I'm okay with generalizations as long as we're clear that they are generalizations. So this curve doesn't represent everybody's experience, and if it doesn't represent yours, then don't be cross. Um, This is a chance to learn about something that might represent the experience of a lot of people in the room here today. So for many of us, our life with God goes something like this. We begin with a relatively healthy sense of God's presence in our lives. So as we move across the graph, we're getting older. Uh, That's the bad news, okay? So we start over there um, in our childhood. Uh, Many of us in a gathering like this have had the privilege of growing up in homes where Jesus is known, in churches where he's taught. So we, we start with a healthy sense of all of that. And, and that then begins to grow for us as we are taught and as we learn, as we go to Bible class, or sorry, Sunday school, uh, BB and GB. And if we're fortunate, but again, for many of us, this is true, that continues through our teenage years as we have godly Bible class leaders, people who are uh, working with us in youth fellowships, in the church's equivalent of our breakfast club, whatever it is. And if a, if a person stays, if a person in their mid-teens decides to stay around, that curve might just continue to rise as they grow in maturity, as they're given opportunities uh, to be involved, maybe leading in some sort of children's ministry on a SISM team going to lead camps and then if you keep going the the curve continues to rise to some sort of pinnacle oftentimes maybe a person chooses to go to university and it happens to have a good Christian union so this is a place where as young adults we've begun to really own our faith Uh, we're beginning to learn to talk about it and to articulate it to understand it clearly to own it for ourselves and we have four months off every summer to go and do God stuff. So we're right up there at the, the very peak of our curve. Anybody cross yet? It's a generalization. It's okay. So you notice that the curve's been going up and up and up. We've been taught a lot. We've learned a lot. We've got time and energy to do stuff in God's service And it feels like we're right on song with God. But then things start to change. We'll land our first job. And we discover that, unlike uni, where there was a small group in our department and identified Christian people who wanted to meet with us and encourage us in our walk with Jesus, shtum, none of that. Nobody wants to talk. Any God stuff here. This is a different environment. There are much less holidays to go and do our camps and our missions. There might be the added pressure for some people of further professional study. There's certainly less time for overtly God stuff. And so our sense of just being in the sweet spot with God starts to diminish. Perhaps we're in a a relationship, we're engaged or we're married. Occasionally, those things can be a wonderful catalyst for growth for us, but oftentimes, too, they can serve to dilute our vision and our passion. Something just gets a wee bit more comfortable uh, rather than hungry for God. And perhaps kids come along. So whatever free time and energy we once had now goes on changing nappies, doing homeworks, the taxi run, whatever stage of that you're at. And then for all of us, whether we're in a family or not, there's just the the ongoing relentless rough and tumble of, of work life, the tedium of our commute. There's the the pettiness of colleagues who are fighting about who gets the biggest office and who, who gets the right company car. There are the conflicts in the workplace which might we might be able to keep a lid on but they're simmering all the time. And maybe by the time you get to my age and start to look into what middle age might look like, there's the question of disappointment. The plans that I had for myself aren't all being realized we don't have family or at least not the kind of family that we had hoped for our workplace ambitions haven't been realized and these things begin to take a toll on our identity we just don't seem to be quite so intensely living life with God I'll say it again It's a generalization. A lot of it, or even most of what I've said here, may not hold true for you at all, but I've seen some people nodding and recognizing some of what I've said here. My basic point is this. For a lot of us, the high point of our Christian life feels like it's firmly in our past. That was then, and it's not now. if I've got that wrong and if you're experiencing the high point of your walk with God right now feel free to zone out for 15 minutes, will you? Just read the Bible there in front of you catch up on some text messages because this is what I'm going to talk about here today. But if any of what I've said so far if the struggle that we face under the weight of life—to to know that we're walking well with God and living with Him—if any of that resonates with you, then lend me your ears for a few moments as we think about these busy years. Jacob's in the busy years, and the passage this morning deals with about twenty or so of his years. Um, by the way, I mean the whole of chapter thirty when I say that. And it really, if you look at the headings in the NIV, it tells you that there are two things going on in Jacob's life. He has lots of kids and lots of flocks. That's it. That's what's happening. He's growing his family and he's growing his career. He's right in the thick of the busy years. And my question this morning is, can you grow with God during a time like that? Or is it inevitable that we come out somewhere very, very low on our curve once we've come through this phase. Is Jacob growing with God through the busy years, or does he become distracted and disillusioned? First part of the passage, as I've said, deals with the growth of Jacob's family, and it begins back in chapter 29, verse 31. We're told there are about 12 children born to Jacob. Leah has six sons and a daughter Rachel's maidservant Bilha has two sons, Leah's maidservant uh, Zilpah has two sons, and finally Rachel gives birth to a son Joseph. We're not going to have much time to deal with any of the detail of this this morning. We did think of a lot about Leah last week. Let's think for a moment this morning about Rachel. Leah, if you remember, was the unloved wife of Jacob, but she was having all these babies. Rachel, who was loved, isn't able to have the babies she so craves. And even just reading the passage, feel free to skim it as I talk. There's there's a real growing sense of desperation uh, with Rachel at this point. In the first couple of verses of chapter 30, the narrator focuses on Rachel's plight. She's jealous of Leah understandably. She's angry with Jacob, and he, in turn, is angry at her for taking it out on him. Leah's not, or Rachel, sorry, isn't the first person in the family of God who's had to deal with this heartache. Sarah, as we say, said before, had to wait for, for a long, long time until she could have children in her old age. Rebecca, Jacob's mom, waited 20 years of marriage before she had her boys, Jacob and Esau. And it seems as though being part of the family of God doesn't do what a lot of us hoped it would do, and that is give us the life that we dream of. It doesn't exempt us from the heartache of normal human life. If you read the passage, which we didn't read this morning, that first part of chapter 30, you'll see that Rachel takes this all into her own hands and tries to manipulate all of this. She does it in two different ways. One by a maidservant, gives her maidservant to Jacob so that he can have children by her. One by a mandrake, I'll let you read that and try to work all that out for yourself. But the basic thing is she she tries to to grasp a whole of that situation and to control it in her own way. But when she finally falls pregnant, verse 22, it's not as a result of her forcing the issue at all, not as a result of clever technique. We're told that God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb. She set aside technique. She's called out to God. And we're assured here that he heard her and we learn that he opened her womb. She calls her son Joseph and prays that God might add another. There's something tragic about that childbearing competition there in the early verses of chapter 30 with each wife striving to outdo the other, whether it's by maidservant or by mandrake. Yet the incredible thing is it's out of these very flawed motives that the leaders of the tribes of Israel are born. You know that about this family, don't you? This is is Israel, the family being born right here. From Reuben and Simeon right down to Joseph and Benjamin. This is the story of God's work with humanity. He shapes good out of our embarrassingly flawed lives. This family, we've seen it every week pretty much. They're a bit of a car crash of a family. And yet God says, This will be my people. So God's purposes aren't thwarted by our sinfulness. His grace is bigger, bigger, much bigger than our sin. This morning we're thinking about the busy years. Uh, that period in life where we experience increased responsibilities at home and in the workplace, even if we don't have the, the privilege and the challenge of raising a family, there comes a point for most of us when we do enter the workplace and we have increasing responsibilities in that sphere. The second half of chapter 30, that passage we read this morning, tells about Jacob's life at work. In verse 25, we learn that he's uh, ready to leave Haran. He's had enough there. He's probably been there at least 14 years by this stage, and he wants to go home. Uh, And not surprisingly, Laban doesn't want to let him go. We noticed this last week. Laban knows that Jacob's a good guy to have around. He recognizes that God's blessed him whenever Jacob's in charge of his household. So Laban asks again for a second time that question that we noticed last week. The boss comes to him, verse 28, and says, name your wages. I don't know if it happened to anybody this week, but we we mention it again, and we pray on that our bosses will approach us on that footing in the week ahead. Name your wages, and I will pay them. Jacob doesn't want wages. He wants a business of his own. He wants a chance to build up a herd of his own. So he presents Laban with a contract. Give me all the speckled and spotted animals in the herd. And you read the small print of that in verses 31 to 33. Laban agrees. He takes all the speckled, spotted animals, gets his sons to look after them, and sends them three days' journey away. And that way, I think he knows Jacob. He doesn't let Jacob look after his own flocks, Jacob's flocks, because he thinks Jacob's a crook and he doesn't trust him. Uh, he thinks that Jacob can't take advantage of him in this thing that he's set up. Uh, in verses 37 to 42, we discover that he hasn't quite the measure of Jacob yet. He's a crook that nobody could keep up with. It's really an account here of two crooks trying to outmaneuver each other. I've I've read this and I've read commentaries on it, and it's quite hard to get your head around exactly how this all works. Um, but um, verses 42 to 43, we get to see the results. That whatever scam Jacob was running, it worked to his benefit. So the weak animals went to Laban, and the strong ones to Jacob. In this way, Jacob grew exceedingly prosperous, and came to own large flocks and maid servants and men servants, and camels and donkeys. In today's terms, we would say that his career took off and that his net worth rocketed. Family, career, Jacob's in the busy years. Our question, can Jacob be growing with God through this busy period of his life or will he become distracted or disillusioned? Actually at first glance it's hard to tell and this passage that we have read in chapter 30 doesn't give us many clues. How can we tell if Jacob's walking with God? How are we to assess Jacob's busy years? Well we need to reach beyond the limits of our passage to see how that picture begins to unfold and we get some clues here about what what's been going on for Jacob during these 20 years he's been in Haran. Look at chapter 31 verse 5. Jacob speaking here to his two wives, Rachel and Leah. He's trying to convince them that it's time to leave Haran, and he says, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. In verse 9, he says. God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. So here we get a bit of an insight into the mind of Jacob as he comes out of this period of his life. Here's a man who, one, knows that God has been with him, two, knows that God has protected him, and thirdly, knows that God has blessed him with all that he owns. And if you read on, you'll see that he'll add to, to all of that recognition also the recognition that his family is a gift from God. He doesn't take his family for granted either. Jacob's not perfect by a long shot. We've seen that even in today's passage. We'll continue to see it. He's still prone to the scheming and the manipulation, but he's recognizing God's presence with him. He's grateful to God for the ways in which God has blessed him and been with him. So often when you talk to people who have been living through these busy years, when they've been given good jobs, when they've been blessed with a family, you get a sense from them that they're self-made men and women. It's down to my hard work is the subtext, down to my smart decisions, my wise governing of my domestic affairs. Jacob's not so presumptuous. He gives credit to God for all of these things, and they're huge indicators, I think, that he has been growing through these busy years. I'm going to argue that Jacob's life with God curve has been rising even during the busy years. Paul, maybe we'll just pop that other curve up. He hasn't been the president of his local CU, but he's grown. He hasn't been able to go on short-term missions in this period, but he's matured in his knowledge of God. He may not be able to do much for God, the kind of language that we use, but he's noticed what God's done for him and in him, in his home, in the place where he lives. Brothers and sisters, I've chosen to preach this passage this way today because I want to encourage you and challenge you both at the same time. I don't believe that the high point of your Christian life need be in the past. Do you hear me say that? I believe that God can be doing profound things through you here and now, whatever your circumstances, however ordinary they might appear. I believe that this sense of the high point of our lives with God being in the past could be based on a serious misconception. We believe that we're closer to God when we're doing more God stuff. In that time when we didn't have family, didn't have career obligations, we were able to do lots of overtly religious activity But the problem with that view is that it boils life down to this thing where it's all about what I do for God. And it's very little about what he does for me. God's pleased with me when I'm busy doing religious things. And he's somehow disappointed with me when I'm busy living the everyday life that he's given me. Friends, I wonder how well we know our God. Did you know, for example, that he's endlessly patient with those who have responsibility for for young children? Did you know that? Here's how he reveals himself in Isaiah 40. He is the God who gently leads those who have young. The images of a shepherd bringing his flock along with him. But because he sees the mothers with their little ones, he knows not to drive the flock hard. He gently leads those who have young. Did you know that he's entirely familiar with the everyday routines of life? When he came and lived among us, Jesus Christ in all likelihood served alongside his dad as a carpenter. He rose early in the morning to make kitchen tables. And he worked late into the evening putting door frames into people's homes. And he did that on a Monday and on a Tuesday and on a Wednesday and on a Thursday, month in, month out. Did you know that God hates religious leaders who burden people with their religious stuff when they're already stretched? Did you know that? Jesus Christ talks about the leaders of his day, Matthew chapter 23, verse 4. And he says they tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. People who put heavy loads and aren't willing to lift a finger to help. Rather than place burdens on us, Jesus Christ says he came to set us free. He says, My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. I could go on to to demonstrate this more fully, but I'd rather point you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you remember Jesus' last words as John records them in his gospel? Jesus says, It is finished. Everything that needs to be done to make you right with God is done, it's finished. And the finished work of Jesus Christ means that I don't have to be burdened by any sense of religious obligation to do X, Y, or Z. I'm free to go and live life for God's glory. We've been thinking today... Uh, very quickly about 20 years of Jacob's life that I call the busy years. We've seen him grow, we think. And we've asked about the possibility that we too might grow even through our busy years. Have you considered that you being the means to bless your spouse Or your children might just be the biggest calling of all and the place of glory? Have you considered that being Christ's hands and voice in your workplace might just be the opportunity of a lifetime that dwarfs short term volunteer experiences in your youth? Are you looking out for the ways in which God could be using you and growing you on the other front lines that you have in your life? What if the pinnacle of our pilgrimage might not be in the past at all? What if it's today? What if we've learned more and grown more? What if, even in the middle of the struggle? What if, in among the the smelly nappies, the difficult clients, and the aging parents, we're growing? We're stronger, wiser, more Christ like than we ever were before. What if he really is with us for the whole of life, for every part of it? What if this ordinary life's a whole lot less ordinary than we ever imagined? Let me pray.